MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have a lot to talk about today, including closed-door testimony from a convicted felon by the House Republicans, a scathing ruling against Trump in Fulton County as the DA prepares to issue indictments, and a critical compromise of Air Force communications. Yeah, and Trump is trying to revive his lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and 30 other defendants, I think, including you, Pete. Yeah. Uh, we also have an update on Pete Navarro's contempt case and the Department of Justice making David Weiss available for testimony to House Republicans. But first, let's thank some new patrons. Thank you so much. You make this show work. Erica Guzek, James Strzok. Any relation, Pete? Yeah, I think that might be my Uncle Jim, in which case <laughs> I need uh, the bonus <laughs> episodes. Not that I'm going to change my swearing, but uh, I, I don't know quite what he that he knows what he's getting into. But thanks, <laughs> Uncle Jim. I will <laughs> we'll have that continued amusement of the entire uh, family here by me <laughs> feeling the sh burning shame every time I drop an F-bomb. But thank you. <laughs> uh, Cindy Merton, Mary Ro uh, Reardon. Jay Reed, Ken Hughes, Sandy Thorne, Julia Halley, and Peter Navarro is a big poop head, allegedly. Thank well, we you so much. Yeah, we got some things to say about Peter here in a little bit, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, we definitely <laughs> will. And if you want to become a patron, and again, as as evidenced by Peter Navarro is a big poop head, allegedly, you can put whatever you want as your name and we will call it out on the show. You can sign up by going to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. It's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. Yeah, so let's start out in Georgia. Uh, Hugo Lowell has confirmed that the DA Fonnie Willis is looking at RICO, along with other individual statutes. This is from The Guardian. Among the state election law charges that prosecutors were examining, criminal solicitation to commit election fraud and conspiracy to commit election fraud, as well as solicitation of a public or political officer to fail to perform their duties and solicitation to destroy, deface, or remove ballots. Huh, yeah, and that makes me think of, that removing ballots makes me think of that phone call Lindsey Graham made. I'm really interested to see if he's going to be indicted or if somehow she's going to avoid that because of the speech or debate clause. Uh, Hugo goes on to say the district attorney is also seeking to charge at least some of the Trump operatives who were involved in accessing voting machines and copying sensitive election data in Coffee County in January of 2021 with computer trespass crimes, according to two people familiar. 
Um, The outcome of deliberations, as well as the manner in which the statutes might be enforced, remains unknown. For instance, prosecutors could charge under certain statutes individually, fold them into a wider racketeering case of the kind that The Guardian has previously reported, or do a combination of both. Uh, I, I think... Pete, why why not both? I, I think we might see a combination here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, much like what I think we're, uh, you know, I think by the time you're listening to this, staring and reading through the federal indictment of Donald Trump and others in Washington, D.C. that's going to come down on Tuesday, I think. Uh, George is the same in the, in the sense that the interest for me is not so much whether or not Trump is going to be charged, because I think it's very clear that he is. The question is, who else is getting charged with him and the scope of the activity that's alleged? Because, you know, there there are two issues, at least, that are going on here. The first is, what were the illegal acts that were involved? How do you sort of look at and address all the variety of the scheme within Georgia to uh, change the election illegally, allegedly? And to the extent that that involves things like computer intrusions in Coffee County, the people who are involved with that, uh, you know, how broadly do you cast your net in terms of that illegal activity? And then the second thing is importantly, how are you telling all this to a jury? I mean, you can overwhelm a jury with something that is like so complex and has so many different moving parts that are interconnected, but not directly that it can be almost counterproductive in that if you're trying to keep track as a juror, the more people you add, the more, you know, it's like a play. And if you're trying to follow the plot of a play and all of a sudden you go from like three or four, you know, protagonists and antagonists to suddenly you've got 15, 25, 35 people that you're trying to keep track of in your head, it, it becomes uh, harder as a juror to to kind of work your way through it. So again, that's a long-winded way of saying that I think it may be both. I, I think we are going to see more people than we expect potentially. Um, you know, I would not be surprised, for instance, to see more than 10 defendants charged. But, you know, we'll see, I think, you know, soon enough. My bet is 17. That's why my uh, avatar at the indictments only Twitter account is the number 17 I have written down and circled <laughs> in my notebook. And that's why you see the 17 there. That, that's that been my guess for a while. That was before the electors started cooperating. But now that I've seen some of the more expansive nature of some of these other folks, including Coffee County, I've, I've kept it at that number. Um, also, I just wanted to address the potential future elephant in the room. Uh, as you're listening to this, Trump may have been indicted. You brought this up, Pete, in D.C. on federal charges um, for his attempted coup. Uh, the, the, we question, record- the, the question, Allison, is as people are listening to this on, say, Wednesday morning, are you are you sober yet in the event of a, uh, <laughs> a Trump indictment on Tuesday? But uh, we can we can we can we can talk about that in the bonus. Yeah. And and I just wanted to say, you know, hey, we record this on Monday. Uh, So anything that goes down on Tuesday doesn't make it into the episode on Wednesday. So I just wanted to let you know the reason that we haven't addressed that in case it did. It does happen tomorrow. But yesterday for you. That's the reason. Um, Pete, what else is going on well, down so, in Georgia? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on in Georgia. So most importantly, Trump got you know McBurned uh, today in a ruling from Judge McBurney, which I think was actually issued either late last night or maybe early this morning. But essentially- And that's what, by the way, Anna Bauer says. She says it's known down in Georgia to, to it's right. called you, you've been McBurned. 
<laughs> right. And so, and what's interesting is, in no uncertain terms, uh, Trump had appealed um, for, for mandamus relief and just in general saying, hey, look, you know, Fonnie Willis should be removed from this and uh, the charges are all bogus and should be thrown out. But McBurney left no doubt in anyone's mind from the filing that he entered. Uh, and this is these are some quotes from that filing, quote, the professed injuries are also speculative and unrealized because there is, as of yet, no indictment that creates the genuine controversy required to confer standing. Continues this is what in a footnote. Eileen Cannon should have done, by or, the way. Down, right. And I think, you know, he, he references in there, he pulls some of the language from the 11th, federal 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So it's very interesting. You know, he is, he is following some of this and including some of the legal reasoning from the federal court. So it's interesting to see how, you know, in Judge McBurney's case, he is certainly looking at other Trump activity, not just in, in state dockets, but in, in federal courts as well and, is, and applying it in his rulings. But there, there's a particularly golden footnote that, you know, for, for folks out there, when you read these, you know, increasingly, I love journalists who put links or the actual raw court filings. Always read those and make sure you pay attention to the footnotes because some of the best verbiage, some of the best sort of shade in, the, in a judicial sense will come out in the footnotes. And this is no different. From a footnote, quote, and for some, being the subject of a criminal investigation, a la Rumpelstiltskin, can be turned into golden political capital, making it seem more providential than problematic, McBurney wrote in this footnote. Continuing, regardless, simply being the subject or target of an investigation does not yield standing to bring a claim to halt that investigation in court. McBurney praised the district attorney for keeping what he wrote as the, quote, consistent and persistent theme of her public commentary is what he called, quote, standard fare of pursuing the evidence where it leads us, holding everyone accountable, and no one being above the law, unquote. He continues on, quote, the drumbeat from the district attorney has been neither partisan in the political sense nor personal in marked and refreshing contrast to the stream of personal invective flowing from one of the movements. <laughs> and then one of the last little bit out of this filing. This is good. This one's they, good. Yeah. Quote, perplexingly, prematurely, and with the standard pugnacity, Trump has filed not one, but two mandamus actions against the district attorney and this court, McBurney wrote, noting that one of these has already been dismissed. Quote, peculiarly, neither petition requests the sole relief available under mandamus, an order compelling a public officer to perform a required duty, unquote. And so, you know, that it, there, there's no uncertain terms here. And I think, Allison, you know, you and I were, were texting back and forth this morning trying to figure out like how that, uh, you know, how that impacts this Cobb County hearing that that's coming up. Did, and, and I think we've got an answer, right? Yeah, I think we do. But I, I love the perplexingly, prematurely, pugnacity, peculiarly. I mean, like he's, he's on a tear with the... The, 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 alliteration. the P alliterations, yeah. Yes. Um, so what a, this case, we were thinking, you know, because we were wondering what, what happens now with the case that was recused from Fulton County. Remember, the, the head judge recused it from the entire bench in Fulton County, to uh, remanded it up to the 7th District in Cobb County to be heard by Judge Schuster, who was scheduled, he had scheduled a hearing for August 10th. Well, this McBurney ruling was on... Uh, is on Trump's original motion, not the mandamus or either of them. But as McBurney noted, Trump filed the two mandamus actions, as you just read. One was dismissed by the Georgia Supreme Court. 
The other one is the one that was recused from Fulton County to Cobb County. Now, Anna Bowers writes on Twitter that this ruling by McBurney would moot the mandamus action in Cobb County. So it appears there will not be a hearing on August 10th. I haven't seen that filing yet. Usually there's some sort of court filing say, I'm, we're moot. We're not having this thing. But from a footnote, again, always read the footnotes, in the McBurney ruling on Monday, it says this filing, while it will indubitably be appealed, <laughs> should, moot the, should moot the civil action as to the supervising judge. And supervising judge being the one who remanded it up to Cobb County. In the future, counsel is encouraged to follow the professional standard of inquiring with chamber staff about timing and deadlines before burdening other courts with unnecessary and unfounded legal filings. Uh, another McBurn right there, right? It's, I, yeah. <laughs> it's I, I can't, you know, when we get to the end of this, Allison, when we get to the end and tally up, one, the number of defendants that have been charged. I mean, I, I think we're going to, at state and federal level, we're going to be up and approaching 100. But the other thing is all of these jerky attorneys who have pushed and pushed the boundaries and edge of the legal system, I am hopeful, one, that we will see some sanctions with teeth in them, whether that's, you know, bar sanctions or worse. And if not, you know, the legal profession has to take a good hard look in the mirror about whether or not they're suitably, you know, looking at attorney misbehavior. I mean, it's one thing if you want to be a zealous advocate, but when you have courts, you know, encouraging counsel to follow professional standards, I, you know, it, it seems to me that maybe maybe that's not an ideal thing. Yeah, especially in, in this post-Trump world, right? I mean, this probably wasn't too much of a problem <laughs> before, and now and now it definitely is. Uh, but uh, I think I think Fonnie Willis did an interview uh, with Eleven Alive, didn't she? Down yeah, in, she in did. Atlanta? And there was a lot of really interesting stuff that came out of that. One of the things she said uh, was that quote: "Some people may not be happy with the decisions that I'm making." Willis said, "And sometimes when people are unhappy, they act in a way that could create harm." And then she went on to say, the work is accomplished. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. Whew, that's imminent, imminent. That's extra imminent. Um, she also said, Jack Smith doesn't know what I'm doing. I don't know what he's doing. In fact, if he were standing next to me, I probably wouldn't know it was him. And he probably wouldn't know how to pronounce my name. The she, the, those are the words that she said about special counsel Jack Smith. Um, and I'm curious as to that, because I know a lot of times... You don't want to talk about any coordination if there is any. You generally don't talk about that. But this was like, she she didn't just say, no, we aren't coordinating anything. She said, if he were here, I wouldn't know him. Who I wouldn't recognize him and he wouldn't be able to. Like, she went way out of her way to say no. And I, I'm thinking they really aren't, um, maybe aside from some, you know, witness stuff or, or handing each other uh, maybe some testimony or because we know DOJ has to make sure that the testimony be uh, between the grand juries is consistent. Uh, aside from that, I mean, it just does. It seems like there isn't any coordination here at all. Yeah, that that surprised me a little bit because, I mean, look, it's certainly it, to some extent there are overlap uh, areas between what she's doing and between what Jack Smith is doing. Take Brad Raffensperger, for example. Clearly, I think he's been interviewed by both entities. And there are several folks that fall into that category. I wouldn't be surprised if Rudy Giuliani fell in that, you know, and potentially, you know, many, you know, up into, you know, potentially a dozen or more folks who have been interviewed by both. So you do run into a little bit of a question here about are people telling 
each of those entities the same thing. If they appear before the grand special purpose grand jury uh, down in Georgia, do they testify to the same thing that they testify in Washington, D.C. to Jack Smith's grand jury? So there are some potential areas that at some point you're going to have to, there will need to be some at a minimum, I think, exchange of information. But I I was a little bit surprised to hear that. Now, you know, on the one hand, that's good. Neither she nor Jack Smith want to be seen as, you know, sort of colluding together or one using the other as a stalking horse. But there are some areas legally uh, that they're going to need to, um, you know, again, at a minimum, I think, exchange information. And so maybe, you know, that'll, that'll happen after after the charging uh, documents. But, you know, to the extent that we may, you know, one person sees if, if as anticipated, Jack Smith files an indictment tomorrow in D.C., Tuesday, yesterday, as you're listening to it, you know, whatever information is in that indictment, I'm certain, uh, you know, Fannie Willis and her attorneys are going to be reading it to just kind of verify that there are no real surprises in there. But, you know, that's and not uh, only that, but some of those things that, are, that uh, Jack Smith would charge for can be predicated under Georgia RICO statute, RICO statutes. So that it might be helpful to her for, for him to go first. Um just uh, for for those reasons, although it seems like, uh, and and we've kind of said this, like her stuff isn't going to be based on what he's doing. His stuff doesn't look like it's based on what she's doing, which seems to be different than what's going on in Arizona and Michigan with the fraudulent electors. There seems to be a little bit more uh, coordination there with handing, you know, making the referral to DOJ, DOJ kicking back the electors, but keeping the Trump part. Um, so, but again, uh, we just don't know the extent of the communication, but Fonnie Willis was pretty pretty clear in in that, you know, that they aren't really having any kind of, you know, ongoing major coordination with their two cases. Yeah. You know, and, and one last thing I was, I was chuckling about, I, I put it on threads earlier, this whole, you know, reference by McBurney to Rumpelstiltskin. I mean, it's probably, I, I, I threaded or whatever the hell it's called, Trumpelstiltskin. And it's just, it's just the perfect analogy for what Trump is doing to the Republican Party. They are jammed up. They are trying to get a president elected and then reelected. And they're coming in and Trump is spinning the straw into gold at increasing cost to the Republican Party. And at some point, you know, it's gone from like, well, you know, I need to, you know, satisfy the king to I need to get married to, you know, you can have my first child. But guess what? The GOP is never going to figure out Trump will still skin's real name. He is going to burn down the house. And I thought, you know, whether or not he intended the sort of depth of that analogy when when he wrote that footnote, I just, you know, spinning it around and thinking about it, I can't, you know, it is a wonderful analogy to the thrall that Trump holds the GOP and that they're going to burn down the house. They are absolutely going to ride or die with him and they're going to ride or die into a, you know, a pit of, of hellfire. So, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see when it is that the party finally wakes up and shakes themselves off of this. But, you know, he destroyed whatever semblance of red wave might have happened in the midterm elections. And it's going to, I think it's going to be worse in two years, but we'll, or one year, I guess, but we'll see soon enough, I guess. Yeah. I'm not even sure the Republican party will survive Donald Trump, but we will see. And we will report on it <laughs> as we continue to clean up on aisle 45. Everybody, we have to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. 
I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Let's talk about House Republicans. But first, more patrons. We have Dana Selzer, Justinus Menzel, RocketCityDerby.com, Tammy Laughlin, Linda Krantz, CM, Crazy Grateful, Monica Bounds, and Radical Unelected Bureaucrat at Department of the Deep State. Thank all of you so much. <laughs> <laughs> really, really appreciate your support, named and unnamed. But uh, again, thank you. You are the, the folks that drive this uh, podcast. So thanks very much. Yes, again, a million thank yous. All right, Archer. And not the very cool cartoon. Um, <laughs> this is Devin Archer. He uh, is the another one of the big bombshell witnesses that's going to blow the lid off the Biden family crime spree or whatever the hell. Um, it didn't happen again. What? Tell us about what Devin Archer told the committee behind closed doors today. Yeah, well, well shockingly enough, I know everybody listening will be stunned to hear. He told the House Oversight Committee on Monday that his former business partner, Hunter Bryden, was selling the, quote, illusion, unquote, of access to his father, according to a source familiar with a closed-door interview. The latest just development- just as we thought. Yeah. Right? You know, exactly shockingly. what we thought. Like, he was, like, <laughs> sitting there like, my dad's Joe Biden, and da-da-da, you know, like, and he's that's sitting right exactly next to me. what we thought it would be. Yeah. Surprisingly <laughs> enough, nothing to it, and nothing, nothing finer than watching. I they, they, There was just posted, uh, right before we started taping this, uh, a deflated Andy Biggs walking in the D.C. sun to his car- Asked what was said and essentially saying, you know, was there any information linking this to Joe Biden and just deflatedly saying no, nothing. So, I, you know, again, it was absolutely what we expected. It is the latest development in this Republican led congressional investigation into the into the president's son, which is turning up absolutely nothing. The source also reiterated that Archer provided no evidence 
connecting President Joe Biden to any of his son's foreign business dealings. And Rep. Dan yep. Goldman, uh, you know, a Democrat on the panel who sat through the portion of Archer's interview where he was questioned by Republicans, he, Goldman, said there was a lack of evidence connecting the president to his son's foreign dealings. Goldman said Archer told the panel that Hunter Biden did put his father on speakerphone in the presence of business partners, but that business was never discussed. So, I, you know, how long they continue to just beat their head against this wall until it's bloody, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the reason this came up too, Allison, was there was, you know, over the weekend, just a huge sort of rumblings of we're going to have to impeach Merrick Garland because over the weekend, the Justice Department submitted a new request asking a judge to schedule a date for Archer to surrender to prison and begin serving out his one-year sentence resulting from a conviction in an unrelated fraud case, according to court filings. The move prompted immediate speculation among some Republicans that the Biden administration was attempting to prevent Archer from answering questions about Hunter Biden before the GOP-led committee, though in a court filing, the government explicitly requested that Archer's sentence began after he completed his congressional testimony. And sure shit, well, sure enough, what happened, you know, on Monday morning, rolls into Capitol Hill, sits down and gives them a big, huge nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were all like, oh, it's they're they're doing it right. It's interference. Um, but, you know, we have to you know, if you see this kind of thing on social media, just 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 gently remind them that Archer was convicted, tried, indicted, uh, sentenced during the Trump administration. It was under Jeff Sessions uh, that he <laughs> that he was indicted. Uh, he's just been appealing to stay out of jail for this whole time, and he was being forced to report to prison, and that the DOJ explicitly told the the you know the Bureau of Prisons wait until he te- does his little behind the closed doors testimony. They weren't trying to stop anything from happening at all. And uh, do they have any witnesses that aren't criminals? No, I don't know. And I mean, this whole thing about, oh, DOJ is trying to throw him in jail so he won't testify. No, he needs to go to jail because he is a convicted felon whose appeal Mm -hmm. failed. And in the United States, when you're convicted of a crime and your appeal fails, you go and you serve your sentence, in this case, jail. And and how, how, I I don't know. I mean, if your, your best witness happens to be a convicted felon, if some of your other best witnesses are fugitives from justice who skipped bail in Cyprus rather than face extradition. If your best witnesses are people who are linked to arms trafficking to Libya and sanctions busting with Iran, what, what, where are they going to go next? What possibly lower in the barrel as they scrape the crud off the bottom? What could possibly be lower? I don't know, but I'm certain... I'm certain Jim Jordan and James Comer will find something to make us and Ohio and Kentucky so, so proud of them. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have to say I love all this bluff calling because this is what the House Republicans do. They ask for stuff that they know they can't get, right? Like they want uh, documents in the Jack Smith investigation. You can't have those. It's an ongoing investigation. They want Chris Ray to to testify about you know, the the stuff going on at school boards or whatever. He's not allowed to do that. It's ongoing. There's it's, These are open and ongoing. He can't even confirm or deny that there are investigations, right? They want um, this information from these FBI whistleblowers. 
uh, and because they assume that they're not going to get it. They assume they're going to get a closed door because they know that, that a lot of these things generally aren't produced due to longstanding policy. But they've but the DOJ has kind of been and the FBI has kind of been like calling their bluff on a lot of stuff by releasing the information on their FBI informants about how they got their security clearances yanked and they were admonished and uh, all that stuff. Uh, how um, the uh, you know, with the with the affidavit for the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, Trump was like, release it, knowing that the DOJ probably wasn't going to release it. And the DOJ was like, sure, pal, here it is. <laughs> here you go. And now they've done it again. And this is with David Weiss. David Weiss was the prosecutor appointed by Trump and then assigned by Bill Barr to look at the Hunter Biden tax stuff and business dealings and Burisma, everything Hunter Biden. And they've been doing it for the last, he's been doing it for the last five years. And the Jim Jordan and Comer and everybody are like, make him testify because we think that he, you know, we have these whistleblowers here from the IRS that say he was going to charge him, but then the DOJ shut him down and Merrick Garland told him he couldn't be a special counsel and all this BS. And so they're like, we demand he testify, thinking the DOJ is never going to let him testify. This is still an open and ongoing investigation. And it's not just, by the way, when the investigation ends. It's when the whole matter is resolved. So usually you don't get to these kind of testimonies until after probation is served in the Hunter Biden plea deal, which has got a little bit of a hang up that we'll talk about in a second. But now the DOJ has written a letter um, signed by Assistant Attorney General Carlos Uriarte. Uh, it says the Justice Department has reservations about public testimony while investigations are proceeding and ongoing, but there are misrepresentations that need to be addressed and, and strongly in the public interest for the American people and for Congress to hear directly from David Weiss. And the quote is, we are deeply concerned by any misrepresentations about our work, whether deliberate or arising from misunderstandings, it's mostly deliberate, that could unduly harm public confidence in the even-handed administration of justice to which we are dedicated. So they're calling Jim Jordan, Comer, they're calling House Republicans bluff here, saying, yeah, we'll have them come in the fall. Uh, and they offered several different dates. Now, presumably, when they wrote this letter, we thought that the Hunter Biden plea deal would go through. But what happened? Yeah. So no, it fell apart. And it was it was interesting because they were all the parties were in court. They were ready to sign the plea. And then the course of that proceeding and it's, uh, you know, we're, we're only seeing sort of obliquely what uh, journalists who were in the courtrooms could sort of hear going back and forth over the bench. But essentially, the judge looking through the terms of the plea asked some questions that uh, the government didn't have necessarily some very good answers about. And what, you know, kind of the the high-level overview of this is that there is some question about the scope of what Hunter Biden would or would not be charged with as uh, as part of the plea deal. And some of it also involved any sort of, uh, you know, guarantees that he would not be and before he would be whether or not a federal judge would have to approve that. And the judge specifically said, well, you know, this is this is novel and confirmed that, in fact, that nothing like this uh, w did exist. And it kind of, you know, peeled back the onion a little bit to realize that a lot of what they're trying to do was, given Trump's statements that I am going to prosecute in jail the Biden crime family, that they wanted some assurance that, you know, this agreement that they're making with the government, that if Trump's elected, he's not just going to renege on the agreement and trying to build in some protection by a judge having to approve it. And the judge appropriately, in my opinion, said, look, this is not, I understand what you're trying to do, but this is not 
an appropriate role for a federal judge. The discretion about whether or not to bring charges lies with the executive, not the judiciary. And so, you know, essentially sent them uh, back to the, the the bargaining table, but not before, you know, a few fireworks. At some point, reporters overheard Hunter Biden's attorney saying words to the effect of, fine, well, we'll just rip up this whole agreement. And uh, I, I think eventually, you know, cooler heads prevailed. And I think we will see a, a renegotiated uh, plea agreement. But long story short, didn't get signed. Uh, I do think it will get signed uh, within the next few weeks. But it was, uh, you know, just kind of pointing to still how Donald Trump and the prospect of a future Trump administration is really stressing all the branches of our government. But here, a, a great example of the stress it's putting on the judicial system. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, I, I think it'll get signed too. It's it's more narrow now. They've they've agreed. Biden's attorneys have agreed that um, it doesn't preclude Hunter Biden from possibly being charged with future crimes such as the failure to register as a foreign agent. Those haven't been brought. Uh, I would think that the statute of limitations could be up on that. I don't know. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Durham hanging potential charges out over, you know, witnesses like Joffe in the Durham, uh, in the Sussman case that he lost um, <laughs> stunningly. Um, it, so it kind of feels a little bit like that. But also, I mean, if if I'm the defense attorney for Hunter Biden, I got to be thinking DOJ hasn't really successfully prosecuted a lot of these Farah cases. And um, fine, go ahead, bring a fair charge. We'll plead not guilty and see where that goes. Uh, I mean, with with everything, with the you know the politicization of it in in the House committees to the IRS people testifying about the investigation to the you know David Weiss who's going to be brought in for. I mean, it's going to be real hard to make any charges stick. I think to to any of this. And and if this weren't Hunter Biden, these charges probably would have would not have been brought in the first place. Uh, so we'll, we'll see where it ends up, but I, I'm pretty sure they'll get the plea deal done and uh, we'll see if there's any charges in the future. I, I doubt it, but I, if there are, they're not going to, I think they might have a hard time prosecuting them. Uh, all right. We have to take another quick break, uh, but we will be right back with more news. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client 
the judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. We have a few more patrons to thank. Jack Smith's massive intimidating subpoenas. Brett Lindenbach, huge ass. No, excuse me. Hugh Jass. Ann Miller, <laughs> Eric Rumpf, Ken Edge, Candace Jeffrey, Kim Ernst, and Valerie Robinson. Thank you all so very much for your pledge. We really appreciate it. You make the show work. What's going on with my other favorite, Pete? Yeah, Pete, the, the, <laughs> Peter Navarro. <laughs> you may remember Allison in its memorandum opinion way back on January 19th, 2023. The court held it, quote, without a more precise factual proffer, the defense of entrapment by Stoppel was, quote, not available to the defendant and that a public authority defense was inapplicable. Well, they recently said that... Uh, the defendant at last has proffered evidence as to a stopment, entrapment by estoppel, and in the same filing, he attempts to resurrect the public authority defense. And for the reasons explained below, based on this proffer, neither defense is available to defendant at trial. And then, uh, so this was a, a response to probably Pete Navarro wanting to file, I'm going to use these defenses in court, and then maybe there was some sort of a, a DOJ filing. Um, to say that these are why the, it, there was actually a DOJ filing. These these aren't available at a, for defense, and this is the uh, you're now reading from the ruling from the judge who is saying why these defenses are still not available to you, sir. Right, exactly. And so he, you know, he continues. Uh, the proffer starts with an incorrect statement of the law. He contends that the willfully element of the contempt of Congress offense found at two U.S.C. one ninety two requires showing that, quote, a defendant acted with knowledge that his actions were unlawful. The court continues, that is wrong. Defendant citation, <laughs> I guess this is the government, right? The, the defendant citations are patently this disingenuous. Is the, this is the ruling from the judge. Yeah, and the judge met, I think, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He continued, defendant citations are patently disingenuous. Defendant still has not told the court that, quote, when the conversation with President Trump about the select committee subpoena occurred, or anything concerning the substance of that conversation. In short, when read in context, defendant's declaration that, quote, President Trump instructed him to assert executive privilege in response to the select committee subpoena, unquote, appears to be a purposely ambiguous statement intended to elide the precision the law requires. And that's it. And here's the even if. So the court says, in any event, even if the court were to accept defendant's proffer at face value, it still falls short. The defensive entrapment by Estoppel requires proof, one, that a government agency actively misled him about the state of the law defining the offense, two, that the government agent was responsible for interpreting, administering, and enforcing the law defining the offense, three, 
that the defendant actually relied on the agent's misleading pronouncement in committing the offense, and four, that the defendant's reliance was reasonable. In light of the identity of the agent, the point of law misrepresented, and the substance of the misrepresentation. The court then continues, defendant's proffer falters on the first and fourth elements. <laughs> yeah, and it, uh, it, it just do- it doesn't get better. Uh, for him <laughs> from here. They, uh, he, uh, Amit Mehta goes on to say, defendant also once again points to an officer legal counsel opinion or multiple opinions to support his entrapment defense. Uh, previously, the court observed that, quote, other than referencing OLC opinions, defendant has never represented that he actually relied on any particular OLC opinion before he refused to comply with the select committee's subpoena, unquote. He still has not identified any particular OLC opinion. Instead, he merely states that he understood the Department of Justice's long-standing policy, in quotes, to be that, quote, senior presidential advisors have absolute testimonial immunity from congressional subpoenas, unquote. But even if that were accurate, an accurate statement of the OLC's position, and it's not, the defendant points to no OLC opinion that recognizes absolute immunity from congressional process for a former senior aide to a former president. That is because there is none. (laughs) Defendant therefore has failed to establish he was actively misled by an OLC opinion. Defendant also attempts to revive the public authority defense, which you just were talking about with those four elements. The court has already held, however, that President Trump did not have the actual authority to approve the defendant's violation of law because he was a private citizen at the time. There can be no public authority defense. That's That's where the first element falls apart. Right. Because the first element is that a government agent actively misled him about the state of the law. And Trump was a private citizen. Further, the defendant states he will put forth a defense of believed exercise of public authority. Believed, Pete. Uh, It is not entirely clear what the defendant means by this. If he means to say that he did not comply with the subpoena because he believed President Trump had the apparent authority to permit him to violate the law, that's not a defense. Alternatively, if he contends that he made an honest mistake about the former president's authority to sanction criminal conduct, that is not a defense either. In sum, a public authority defense is not available to the defendant. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. I, again, I get a lot of this is the court is trying to be very diligent in making sure that the defendant has a right to be heard, that a defendant is able to make arguments that they want to make, frivolous or not, so that if this is you know ever appealed, the appeals court can, the appellate court can look at this record and say, look, you were given every opportunity to make these arguments. They were nonsense arguments. Time and time again, the court pointed out they were nonsense arguments. But at some point, Pete, just go to jail. Just, I mean, you, you, we will see whether or not you survive the gauntlet that is coming between D.C. and all of the states and your role in all of that activity. But when it comes to this contempt, ju- buddy, it's time. It's time. And we'll see if we get there before the end of the year. I, I, I hope we will. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, if they let Bannon out pending his appeal, they'll probably do the same for Pete Navarro. Yeah. And I can't see that, you know, the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is going to, you know, get to this and hear briefing and make a ruling before, you know, we're in August, essentially. Right. So, you know, whether that happens before the end of the year, I don't know. Before the election? Yeah, I think so. Um, so we, we will see, you know, the the privileged, entitled, uh, outraged white man that is Peter Navarro and everybody like him. We'll see 
you know, the inside of a cell, I believe, before the general election, but it's it's still going to take a little while. And talking, Allison, talking about frivolous uh, lawsuits, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump is trying to revive the dismissed and sanctioned, and not just sanctioned, sanctioned to the tune of almost $1 million. The lawsuit that he filed against Hillary Clinton and 30 other defendants, full disclosure, including me, by filing a motion to amend his complaint with the findings of the Durham investigation. And so this this uh, amendment brought by Jared J. Roberts of the Banal Law Group goes and uh, asks for a motion for indicative ruling based upon new evidence. And just if you had any, any question about where this was going, continuing the theme of always read the footnotes, footnote one on page one, Jared swings for the fences, noting, quote, the orders entered by this court imposing sanctions against President Trump and his counsel raise reasonable questions as to the appearance of impartiality of the court. And therefore, a motion to disqualify is forthcoming. So essentially, hey, judge, not even going to let you get to page two. F you. We think you should be disqualified and, that, and that's coming down the pike. But nevertheless, let us put 25 pages of Drek trying to spin uh, the Durham report as just conclusive evidence of the Russia hoax and that there was a broad RICO conspiracy by the dark mastermind. The Durham findings turn this thing on its head and we've been proven right. And it was all, yeah, it's quite laughable. No, Yeah. No, you haven't. No, not at all. Not at all. Not even close. And so I think this will not be- I'm uh, interested in to hear hear what the judge has to say about it, who I'm sure has read the Durham. Yeah. And I'm also interested <laughs> to hear like, again, you know, because this is going to be, I don't know that this is going to require any sort of argument on the part of the defendants or if the court is just going to rule on its own. But if the court decided that, hey, okay, well, we want to hear from the defendants to, the res- uh, to respond and the defendants incur yet more court costs, you know, presumably this could lead to yet another round of sanctions that Donald Trump just, again, recently disclosed that he spent how much, Allison, in the first half of uh, 2023 in legal uh, fees? Wasn't it like 50 some odd million dollars? $56 million, which he got, which he milked from his pack, uh, money that he raised to, you know, for the election defense fund. I I think that that could, this could possibly be a part of an additional crime that maybe Jack Smith brings for wire fraud, for the big lie. He's supposed to spend that money on uh, election defense stuff and he's spending it on criminal defense stuff. <laughs> right. And keep in mind, of that 56, almost 1 million of that, Mr. and Mrs. MAGA America, as you go to your rally and dig deep into your checkbook for your $5 recurring donation, guess where that money went? Hillary Clinton, Rodney Jaffe, all these folks. That's where you're sending this money to, by way, courtesy of Donald Trump and his mm-hmm. BS litigation. Out of your paycheck, out of your, you know... Social Security, because again, they disclose that the grand majority of the donors, that 50 plus million dollars, his his donors, the large majority of them are retirees. So Mr. and Mrs. Maga, as you sit there chipping away at your savings to help Donald Trump, money's going into Hillary Clinton's pocket. Congratulations. And it looks like, depending on where this new you know appeal goes, maybe even a little bit more. We'll see. Stay tuned. Could be. Could be more sanctions. Uh, I will stay tuned. We will tell you about it here on Clean Up on All 45. We have to take one more quick break. We still have more news to go. It's been quite a long week. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, 
comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. A final group of new patrons to thank. We have Clarice Borio, Kim Freitas Harper, Karan Malingo, Addie Patty, Jackson R., Holly Williamson, Stacy Robineau, Dottie Carmen, and Mike Orton. Thank all of you so much. This is just amazing. Uh, you know, we really, really appreciate your support and you know, can't, can't thank you enough for supporting the podcast and what we're doing here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And if you want to sign up to become a patron and have us read whatever name you put in there, you can do it at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. All right. Pete, from Maya Yang at The Guardian, the Pentagon is investigating a critical compromise of communications across 17 U.S. Air Force facilities. And this is according to reports. Critical compromise. The U.S. Department of Defense investigation comes amid a tip from a base contractor that a 48-year-old engineer at the Arnold Air Force Base in Tennessee had taken home various government radio technologies. And this was first reported by Forbes on Friday. According to a search warrant obtained by investigators and reviewed by Forbes, the equipment allegedly taken by the engineer cost about $90,000. It also added that when law enforcement agents searched his home, they found that he had unauthorized administrator access to radio communication technology used by the Air Education and Training Command, which is one of the nine major commands of the Air Force, and in turn affected 17 Defense Department installations. I am immediately taken back to my insider threat training. Uh, in the government. What are your thoughts about yeah. this? I, br I brought this story specifically because I really wanted to hear what your thoughts were. 
Yeah, and we can talk a little bit about all the different factors that led investigators to him. But I mean, you know, taking a step back, this isn't just a question about radio communications technology and the access to the hardware. What's equally as concerning is the fact that he had administrator access. So, so in the sense of the the data that's out there, it wasn't just bringing home a you know some sort of radio technology device, but actually the software and the systems behind it that he also had access to. And then stepping back, you know, if you look at uh, you know, there were 17 DOD installations, which is huge. But if you look specifically at Arnold, you know, one of the things that Arnold is particularly known for beyond simply the Air Education and Training Command, they also have like this really specialized uh, wind tunnel that can generate speeds for testing of up to Mach 8. So just really, really high speed. If you have a design that you're trying to test in a wind tunnel, that they can generate, again, this this very, very high speed. Now, why is that interesting? Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about hypersonic technology, and hypersonics are typically viewed as anything that's at Mach 5, five times the speed of sound or greater. Well, this is one of the few wind tunnels anywhere in the world, let alone anywhere in the United States, that can generate that those sorts of speeds. And if you look at the areas that the U.S. is particularly concerned about China and also Russia, but certainly China's research and development on hypersonics is an area of real, real concern to DOD. So now you have this guy working at the base that has some of this technology that is of extraordinary interest to both the U.S. Department of Defense as well as to our competitors and adversaries in China and Russia. You have somebody sitting there <laughs> you know, exhibiting all of these sort of concerning behaviors that, you know, you make the point about your insider threat training that anybody who has a clearance who have to, has to participate in um, insider threat training, he is sitting there just with red lights going off down the line. And so there's some more detail, right, Allison? Yes, lots more details here. Investigators also found an open computer screen that showed the engineer running a Motorola radio programming software. According to the warrant, the software contained the entire Arnold Air Force Base communications system. The outlet, uh, Forbes, also reported, according to the warrant, a document detailing the forensics on technology seized from the engineer's home revealed that he had a USB which contained, quote, administrative passwords and electronic systems keys um, for the AETC radio network. Other items seized included flash drives that contained, quote, local law enforcement radio programming files and Motorola radio programming files, which presented a warning barrier that indicated they were government property. Installer files, which were recovered in the search, opened with a confidential restricted pop-up, according to Forbes. And the warrant also recounted how witnesses and co-workers informed investigators that the engineer had allegedly sold radios and radio equipment, worked odd hours, was arrogant, frequently lied, displayed inappropriate workplace behavior and sexual harassment, had financial problems, and possessed uh, Arnold Air Force Base land mobile radio equipment. All lot like just... That is the textbook insider threat list of shit to look for for people in the government who might be insider threats. Yeah, and people saw it. It, You know, the, the, the reporting notes that Akali reported him not once but twice due to these insider threat indicators and as well as having unauthorized possession of Air Force equipment, according to investigators. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see what the timeline, I, I assume we will get, you know, in, in some sort of court filing, better I, a better idea of how this unfolded. Was this the kind of thing where people started raising a flag about this guy for, you know, months in advance 
of this? Uh, or was it something that all kind of suddenly people noted it, DOD and the FBI took quick action and removed the threat? But again, coming on the heels of Jack Teixeira, the, the Air Force National Guardsman up in Massachusetts who had had you know, some questions about whether or not he should have gotten a clearance at all, but was you know, taking notes and later just uh, making copies of highly classified information, sticking it on Discord server. There's a real question here about, let you know, what is DOD doing from an insider mm-hmm. threat perspective? Are they doing enough? Are they addressing with sufficient, uh, uh, you know, resourcing and attention and emphasis, uh, you know, these these various threats? Because, you know, following Teixeira, Secretary Austin ordered a, a very quick turnaround sort of review of the insider threat program and posture of DOD in general. But this is just yet another example of, you know, there's a continuing threat out there. You know, in mitigation or in defense of DOD, it, DOD is huge, right? It is a very large organization. And if you say that any, you know, a certain percent of any given workforce is going to be susceptible to insider threats, DOG is massive. So you're never going to get rid of this behavior. But it, it sure, you know, on the one hand, again, I, I want to see the timetable. How long were people complaining about you know, selling radios and radio equipment? How, how long were people saying, hey, this guy's coming in and working odd hours? How many people are saying he's an arrogant jerk who lies all the time, who's engaging in sexual harassment, who can't pay his bills? I mean, you know, at some point th- that becomes so overwhelming, it will be interesting to see how that sort of those concerns unfolded over time. Yeah. And we're, we're taught specifically to look at people who have financial problems because they might be looking to turn a profit off of some of the information that they have access to. So I, uh, I think that it's very, very possible that, you know, with, with people who have financial problems uh, like this guy, uh, and that there were probably multiple people that reported uh, this him as an insider threat. Based on that annual insider threat training we all have to take it's it's going to be interesting i'm i'm with you i want to see the timeline uh the timeline of of how this unfolded because man when i worked at the va getting people clearance was took forever and it was a long and arduous process and it seemed like i mean like it was tough uh and i don't know where the the how that there this lax is happening particularly at the department of defense i mean i know it's huge but like come on guys um, also, by the way, uh, Pete, investigators also reported to have found evidence that indicated that this guy had possible access to FBI communications as well as Tennessee state agencies. So, wow, when you think about the implications of being able to intercept all of these communications to one of the seven WorldCom Air Force communication centers, um, it, it blows my mind. You know, that's what my dad did. He was a crypto communications for the Air Force. Um, and, you know, he would run these tabletop war games back in the 60s for what would happen in the event of a preemptive Russian nuclear strike. And his job was to make sure that our global Air Force communication systems were functioning properly. Um, and he had like SCI clearance, like super high level clearance. And he, he was like an E5, you know, so it's it's kind of unbelievable that that like I can't wrap my head around the scope of what sort of information and intelligence can be gained from the all of those different communication systems that this guy had in his house. Right. And you know, 
one of the goals that you want to have is a, an ability to communicate securely across agencies. You want interoperability in a secure environment. So you can always get on a radio and, you know, we, we had the ability, our, our radios and our vehicles in the FBI, you could drop to a frequency and talk to, you know, sitting here in Northern Virginia, talk to the Virginia State Police Channel or the Metropolitan Police Department Channel in D.C. on sort of a general traffic channel. But you want to be able, I mean, it's easy enough to do that in a in an unsecure meaning, like anybody with a scanner can tune in and sort of hear it. What you want to do ideally is be able to do that in a secure manner so that, you know, somebody with a scanner sitting at home isn't able to listen to those communications. But to do that, you've got to share, you know, the encryption aspect of that. So on the one hand, from an operational perspective, it's great to be able to do it, but it certainly creates a vulnerability that it appears, you know, in this case that he was trying to figure out um, what the FBI communications and, and communication systems might have been that he had possibly had access to that. And so then the question becomes, okay, so it's not, you know, these are all like we saw with these, you know, what was it? 17 DOD facilities. It's a shared technology. Same deal with the FBI. Mm -hmm. The encryption technology is a shared technology. So this isn't just something in the FBI in Tennessee, you know, potentially it implicates, you know, national FBI operations. So again, the, the FBI is working uh, closely with the Air Force. Historically, there's been a, a great relationship with what, you know, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, their OSI. Uh, you know, I think they, they sort of combined a lot of the, the military branch uh, counterintelligence organizations into one. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're working together and, you know, concerned certainly about what he might have had access to. Uh, you know, in DOD for sure, but outside of DOD, certainly. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to follow up on this um, uh, when when we get more reporting, and we will definitely do that here on Cleanup on L45. Thank you again to all of our new patrons. You make this show happen. Seriously, so much gratitude, um, blown away by your generosity. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we <laughs> to, we could get indictments tomorrow, which yeah. is also yesterday for people listening to this. So we'll be on alert. And you will hear it on the bonus episode this week. Thank you again for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm uh, much like in Georgia, while I'm fairly certain Trump is going to be in that indictment, I'm particularly curious about who else. And if I had to guess, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, Mr. Call You When There's an Oil Spill, uh, you know, others, we'll see. But, Cheese uh, bro. Yeah, we'll know, we'll know soon enough. I think, look, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they voted out Tuesday, filed it. Maybe we don't see it until Wednesday, and maybe we get a Jack Smith press conference on Wednesday. Uh, but who knows? We'll, we'll uh, talk about it on the bonus. Yeah, we'll get the Jack Smith press conference announcement right after the Trump truth social rant that <laughs> happens. <laughs> Look forward to both this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. We'll see you next week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. 
I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.